Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that we human beings are friendly tribal animals. We love being together. We love doing things together. Look at all the things in our culture that we do together, from sewing circles to watching basketball games to eating together. Eating together is something we love to do. We love to cooperate and create businesses together. We're collaborative. We're really a wonderful species. However, we must also acknowledge that within our group, there is a very small group of people who are very different. They are predators, they are avaricious, and they would have us be subjects rather than citizens. These are the kind of people who would overturn our democracy, overturn our republic, and turn it into into a dictatorship. I grew up thinking democracy and republic was here forever, but I've come to realize they are really very fragile. And it takes all of us staying awake and voting and being politically aware to maintain our democracy and our republic. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm pleased to tell you that I have with me Ariela Moskowitz, who's the communications director at a program called Decriminalize Sex Work, DSW. It's a national organization pursuing a state-by-state strategy to end the prohibition of consensual adult prostitution in the United States. DSW works with local organizations, advocates, and lobbyists to build community support and convince legislatures to decriminalize consensual adult sex work in an effort to end human trafficking, improve public health, and promote community safety. I would add to that, I don't know if Ariella agrees, but also to destigmatize sex work and let the people who are in sex work have a profession that they can be proud of and their families can be proud of. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ariella. Glad to be here with you today. So, what can you tell us about your organization? Take it from the top. Sure. So, you um, gave a wonderful introduction to what we do. We are working to do exactly what our name suggests, decriminalize consensual adult sex work, and as you correctly pointed out, also destigmatize all forms of sex work, whether they are legal or illegal. And I know that you're familiar with some of the pioneers of the movement to decriminalize sex work. I know you've um, chatted with Carol Lee, uh, who passed away recently. I understand, you know, Margot St. James was a good friend of yours. 
So I know that you understand um, what sex work is when we're talking about it. Um, but just to go over it quickly, sex work is an umbrella term for all forms of sexual labor, some of which are perfectly legal, still stigmatized, which we don't love, actually we hate, including porn, stripping, camming. Um, the only form of sex work that is illegal um, and criminalized in this country is prostitution. Um, not a term we love to use, but since we're working on laws, that that is the legal term um, for an exchange of um, money or goods for a sexual act. Um, I mean, I could go on forever, <laughs> as I well, will shortly, but maybe I'll stop there for now. No, I like it when you go on. Please go on. I, I'm I'm interested in everything you're saying. Great. So I guess I'll tell you a little bit more about what we've been doing. Uh, DSW was founded um, mid-2018, almost in response um, to a new set of laws that were developed um, purportedly to fight trafficking online, commonly referred to as SESTA-FOSTA, Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act, Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. One was the House version, one was the Senate version. Um, what these laws were supposed to do was to, um, well, basically what they did in an effort to criminalize trafficking, um, to fight trafficking, uh, this was a solution in search of a problem um, because trafficking online was already being handled in a lot of ways by, you know, various websites, by law enforcement. Um, actually, before these laws were passed, a lot of law enforcement agencies came out against them to say that this would actually make our investigations into trafficking where and when it's actually occurring much harder. Um, I guess just brief overview picture, um, the incidence of trafficking into adult entertainment is much lower um, then we hear, then, you know, the media and a lot of organizations would like us to believe, of course, when and where it happens. It's a horrific human rights abuse. But a lot of folks combine human trafficking with consensual adult sex work, as do our laws, which creates a lot of issues. So SESTA-FOSTA, what it essentially did was it suspended Section 239 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 which basically stated that platforms would not be liable um, for posts and language that their users um, posted. So you could go on Craigslist erotic services and post, um, you know, your ad as an escort and Craigslist, you know, wouldn't have anything to do with that. But should there be an incidence of trafficking or anything that kind of like violated the terms that SESTA-FOSTA set, which actually there are a number of legal challenges against it right now, we're part of one of them, which also says that the law is unconstitutional because the terms that it set are so vague that no reasonable person can understand if they're breaking a law or not when they're trying to follow them. So well, uh, short, let me let me interrupt sure, you for a moment. Short story Adia. long. Sorry. Thank you. Um, what specifically is sex trafficking and how does it differ from other forms of selling sex? Very simple definition. Trafficking in any labor form, any form of labor, sex, fields, restaurants, um, involves force, fraud, or coercion. 
Force, fraud, or coercion. So somebody is doing something against their will. Um, Sex work is consensual adults engaging in an act that they've both agreed to engage in. Um, This is, you know, I go go all over the place with a lot of it, but this might be an interesting time to point out that sex trafficking, quote-unquote sex trafficking, I actually don't like to use that term um, because it bifurcates trafficking into sex from all the other forms of labor trafficking. And we know around the world that 80 to 90% of trafficking victims are trafficked into labor sectors other than sex. So this enormous emphasis that we place on folks being trafficked into sex does a disservice to all those other individuals who are not receiving resources that they need, not receiving our assistance, in addition to making life dangerous for consensual adult sex workers. Um, I do want to point out quickly that when people think of trafficking into sex, you know, they picture somebody being snatched off their front porch, right? We have all seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, um, where a man and his daughter and daughter's friend travel to Europe. The daughters are kidnapped and they are sold into um, sexual labor important to point out that most forms of sex trafficking in this country, again, using that term, really look a lot like intimate partner violence. Somebody may get into a relationship with somebody and over time they realize that it's that partner that is forcing them to have sexual interactions with other people, keeping their wages, you know, threatening them in lots of ways. So that's really predominantly, um, where we see trafficking into sex in this country. Um, I think it's you, also are you, are you saying it's more prevalent that a woman connects with a man who over time starts selling her to other men, that that is much more prevalent than kidnapping people and forcing them to have sex for money? Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. And of course, actual statistics around this are difficult um, to get. But when people do come forward, that's much more often the case. Do Um, we have do we have data on how many women are kidnapped each year for the purpose of selling them? I I don't um, because I don't know that it's and I would venture to say that it's it would not be the most important place to put our efforts or resources yeah yeah um because there are so many more issues even around trafficking well the um, reason i'm asking the reason i'm asking though is is you mentioned this movie with with liam neeson where he goes with his two daughters and they're kidnapped and i wonder what whether that has an effect on the american public where where people are now afraid that they go somewhere and their children are going to be kidnapped but if that's not if that's really a, a rather rare uh event then the public doesn't need to be frightened of that. They need to be concerned about trafficking, but not about having their own family members kidnapped. Whereas right now, you know, we've been warned not to go to Mexico, to seven states in Mexico. And one of the warnings is because people are being kidnapped. So, you know, you you tend to take that somewhat seriously. And that's what I'm asking about. You know, how serious should the public be, if you have daughters, be concerned? 
In other words, should people be driving their children to school and even when they're 15 and 16 years old and making sure to pick them up? I mean, what, what, what's, the, what's the best way to handle this issue? Right. So there's, there's two things I want to say in response to your question. Um, I think the scarier thing um, about movies like Taken and kind of the misconception around trafficking is that we based laws on these feelings that we have about how things happen. So as opposed to an individual being scared to travel somewhere, you know, I, I can't speak to actual travel advisories, but that storyline of folks being yanked off the street or their front porch while they're walking to school, of course, influences how we think about trafficking, how we think about sex workers, what we want our legislators to do, because that is such a flashpoint that sticks in our mind. And it's easy for legislators to legislate that, right? And then they check the box on trafficking. But trafficking is actually a much more nuanced issue than anyone ever wants to consider broadly. So the answer to your follow-up question about what can parents do, this is where those big picture answers and nuances come in. We know that children who did not receive comprehensive sexual education in school. We know that children who have been marginalized by their communities because maybe they are transgender, non-binary, you know, don't fit any of the typical, quote unquote, typical ways we want children to often behave in our country. And, you know, horrifyingly, Florida is, you know, really, you know, asking these families to flee and go other places. But children who are marginalized in any way are much more vulnerable to falling prey to a predator who knows that they can manipulate them, who knows that they need resources, you know, so vulnerable teenagers who maybe their family didn't accept them because they're, they come out as gay and now they lose that family support system and they haven't received the education that they need are vulnerable to predators out there, to, to relationships that will be abusive to relationships that may turn into a trafficking situation. Um, and, you know, that goes to the root of the issue. Trafficking is really an issue of, of poverty. Um, and it's an issue of power dynamics and it's an issue of oppression. Um, and you're, all I, of- I, you're saying that the people who use fraud or force or coercion are much more likely to use these tactics on poor people than upper middle class or wealthy people? I don't know that you can make the exact distinction, um, you know, across the board over wealth, but if you're struggling to support your family, you might take more risks than somebody who is not. You might see an ad um, to be a nail technician in another country, you know, and then and you go thinking you're going to be a nail technician, thinking you'll send money back to your family and now you are in a in a trafficking situation potentially um and I see. you know to to go back to where we're talking about the confusion between sex trafficking and consensual adult sex work you know the media again going back to kind of the stereotypes around the movie taken the media loves to report on trafficking rings being busted right that goes along with this media narrative we have that there's like this covert underground operation of sending 
young girls places. And, you know, I'm not going to say that there isn't. I, I can't say that certainly. It's not widespread. And nobody that I know has come across victims who have been sold over um, multiple, sold around multiple countries. To be fair, I, I'm, I'm not a trafficking expert. Um, but this, you know, this narrative around it is what causes the media and allows the media to constantly report on busting a trafficking ring. Like, right, how often do we see this term trafficking ring places? And if you look closely at the data, around the arrests when it's a so-called trafficking ring being busted up, it's usually consensual adult sex workers. So our laws are targeting trafficking in a way that neither helps trafficking survivors nor keeps folks consensually engaged in sex safe, which is actually could be, you know, we could argue is one of the reasons we have these laws, right? Some people want sex work to go away completely. If I understand you correctly, your organization, Decriminalized Sex Work, DSW, strongly believes that by decriminalizing sex work, it will have a very positive effect on sex trafficking. Is that correct? Absolutely. Sex trafficking, public health and safety. And it's not just that we believe this. There is ample evidence from around the world to show this. And there's actually some evidence out of Rhode Island when they inadvertently decriminalized consensual adult sex work um, years ago. So it's not just that we believe it, we, we know it. So l make the connection for us uh, about how the decrim of the sex work has a positive effect on the trafficking. Tell us how that happens. Fill in the Absolutely. dots. Right. So, you know, again, back to oppressed populations, marginalized populations, when you're criminalized, you're acting in a completely different way than you would if you are not. Law enforcement is not your friend if you're a criminalized sex worker. You don't want to get arrested. You don't want to lose your children. You don't want to lose your day job. So when people are decriminalized, they're free to work hand in hand with law enforcement to report actual exploitation that is happening. Um, you know, a lot of folks have issues with with law enforcement. What, what this really does, though, is it brings people out of the shadows. And we all know that dangerous things happen in the dark. And we all know that prohibition breeds terrible behavior, right? So trafficking is enabled by the criminalization of consensual adult sex work because this is all pushed underground. So what you're saying, if I understand you, is just as those of us believe that if various substances are made legal, such as marijuana, such as LSD, such as, as cocaine, whatever, that if we make these substances legal, we will undermine the criminal activity because they won't have a criminal activity to perform since what they were selling illegally is now legal and obtainable by everybody. And are you saying by the same token that if you decriminalize sex work, there'll be enough sex available for people to buy legally that it'll undermine those who are preying on people and forcing them into sex work that we call trafficking. Is that correct? 
Yes, although I want to dispel this notion that there is a demand for trafficking or for sex work. This goes into some of the really misguided laws we're seeing proposed around this country um, in terms of ending the demand. What we're what we're saying, as opposed to, you know, a certain demand will be filled so people won't have to force people into sex. That's that's not what what we're saying. What we're saying is that there are predators who are able to target sex workers, you know, and and it's more, you know, a sex worker may have acted consensually at some point and then it becomes forced or vice versa. But what we're saying is, is that people become vulnerable when they are criminalized and they lose ties with their community. They lose ties with their family members. Folks know that sex workers are vulnerable. Sex work is not inherently dangerous. It's the criminalization around it that makes it dangerous, as we saw with the prohibition of alcohol, as you've mentioned with the failed war on drugs. Um, people know that they can get away with terrible behaviors when they are preying on a population who may get in trouble for seeking help or who may have lost contact with their entire support system because they are so stigmatized unnecessarily for what they do. I, I need some I need some help in understanding this, Ariella, and, and and I am somewhat knowledgeable on the topic. And if I need help, I would think everybody does. Uh, and here's why I need help: if there are p- gangs of people whose job it is to take control of people's lives, move them to another area of the country, keep them as captives and sell them for the purpose of sex, why do they care whether sex work is legal or not legal? What they care about is having a product that they can sell from the use of a captive human being. Why would their, right. beha- why would their behavior change in terms of if the laws change? Are they all of a sudden going to say, we don't need, you know, why would they want to change their modus operandi? What they do for a living is take control of people's lives and basically kidnap them. Or am I wrong? Am I just getting affected by movies and media? And that really isn't going on so much. And it's just a stereotype that I have in my head of how this works. It is. It is mostly a stereotype. Again, I'm, I'm not going to say never because we, you know, we, we can't say that. But actually, when you look at folks who are the exploiters and you think about how they operate, they want this to stay criminal. When it's decriminalized, their quote unquote, well, they would be victims. Their victims can are afforded human rights. They can seek help when they need it. We know on average in this country that a victim of exploitation trafficking is on average arrested seven times before they are able to escape exploitation. This is because they are often more scared of their trafficker than law enforcement. But traffickers would not be able to operate in the dark if their victims, when they are arrested, when they come forward, can say, you know, and we wouldn't want them to be arrested, but when people can come forward without fear of their own arrests, trafficking victims because it doesn't quite look like the scenario that you were speaking of just now 
are routinely arrested, right? As I just said, because it's criminalized. So they're arrested, go back to their trafficker. Arrested, go back to their trafficker. So the way the laws function in this... But when they're arrested, don't a percentage of them say to the police, I'm being held captive. I don't want to do this. I'm from Washington. I don't want to be here in Florida. I'd like to get out of this. Send me home to my family. I'm I'm doing something against my will. I mean... No, that's why we know, that's why um, they're on average arrested seven times because they're often more afraid of their trafficker than of, of being arrested. So if folks in the sex industry were afforded the human rights to comfortably seek help without fear of their own arrest or persecution, um, these traffickers would would be brought to light. Well, then part of your job, evidently, is to educate the police, isn't it? Absolutely. Right? Because if the police would take a more humane perspective when somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm being forced to have sex, I'm being held against my will, Instead of arresting them, if they helped them, it would be an entirely different ballgame, wouldn't it? It would be. But the issue in this country is that our resources are so misdirected that often the help that might be available to that person isn't comprehensive. It doesn't address the issues. And so if that person is left to go back out onto the street, right, without any supports that they need to put their lives back together, they're, they're again, vulnerable um, to a situation, and they remain more vulnerable when they're criminalized. Are, are most people who are fraudulently or coerced or forced, are most of them females, or are males also used in this way? Um, you know, if we're talking about trafficking in, into sex, you know, the most folks are are women, and that we know that anyone can be victimized for a number of reasons. Um, and you know, it, the prohibition of sex work really is kind of a gendered issue because it's based on the assumption that most sex workers are women, and that kind of equality between the genders of this is a legal policy that a lot of feminists are pushing for right now um, can't be achieved until sex work no longer happens um, in in our country. And we know that a ball, you know, sex work will never go away, right? This is not something we can end. And so the best thing that we can do is to make it safe for people who are engaged in it. And listen, when you're not criminalized and you can therefore make more money, you're less vulnerable to a dangerous, exploitative, exploitative situation. You know, so all of this works hand in hand when you are more comfortable, you know, when you can sustain life, when you can support yourself and your family um, and you're not in survival mode, you're much less vulnerable to terrible things happening to you. What is the current modern thinking about why men purchase sex more than women? You know, I I don't really spend so much time thinking of, about that. And I, I 
I think the modern thinking, though, would be for all sorts of reasons. We know that first, you know, I'm, I know you know this, but we know that it's not only men who purchase sex, um, but a lot of folks with disabilities may engage a sex worker because they know that they will be um, treated with dignity and with and with care. And that might be the way for them to access that, you know, that basic human need of intimacy and and touch people engage in in sex work, you know, buying and selling for so many reasons that I can't even venture to make yeah. a you guess see, as to. What I'm thinking is that part of the reason that we're having trouble changing the laws and decriminalizing sex work is that the laws are predominantly made by males and males are predominantly using sex workers. If there were more women in the law, or if more women were using sex workers, we might have a different picture. But based on supply and demand, it's obvious, and it has been historically for the last couple of thousand years since we've made sex so taboo, that it's the men who are buying the sex for the most part. Well, I would venture to say then if it's men who are writing the laws and, and a lot of our laws on prostitution go back to wanting to oppress women and, and keep women in their place and keep racial yes. minorities in their place. Yes. But if I would venture to say that if it's men writing the laws and it's men buying sex, that a lot of them would want it to be decriminalized so that when they're a politician and they're caught engaging in a consensual adult act, it's not a headline all over the news and they are not arrested. Um, so I would venture to say that at this point, if it's most men buying, they, they would want it decriminalized. Um, I also want to discuss, if you'll indulge me, this issue of supply and demand, um, and how, um, uncomfortable those terms may are to me in terms of Sex work, um, I, first of all, if you're engaging in full service sex work, you're not selling your body, you're selling a service, right? And people are not commodities to be, you know, this is where we think of trafficking, right? In trafficking, they're treated as, as commodities. Um, folks engaged in sex work are humans providing a, a service. And this idea, because this idea of supply and demand is where some of the most guided, most misguided paradigms and laws around sex work stem from. And I appreciate, I can tell you're somebody who's very, oh, you know, you want to know what's going on. Um, so thank you for letting me say that. So, um, I can go into, go into those issues for a little bit now, if, Please. if you'd like. Very much so. Sure. Okay, great. So um, there's a paradigm. There's four main models around governing sex work around the world, right? We have decriminalization, the complete removal of all penalties, civil or criminal for buying or selling sex. Legalization, um, which we see existing some places as we see decriminalization, which imposes a set of rules and regulations on sex work, doesn't solve any of our problems. And I can explain why in a little bit. Criminalization, what we live under in the U.S. now, right? Buying is illegal. Selling is illegal. And then this model, which goes by many names, um, 
the we call it the entrapment model. It's called the Nordic model, the Swedish model, the in New York where a bill around it has been introduced, the equality model and um, the end demand model. And what this model or policy does, various nuances in the laws where it's been implemented around the world. But what this policy does is it decriminalizes selling sex, but it keeps the buying of sex criminalized. So picture that you want to get a haircut, right? And you go into a salon well, first, let's say, and buy, and paying for a haircut is illegal, right? So your hairdresser, what they're doing is legal. They can give you the haircut, but you going in to get the haircut and paying them for the haircut, this is illegal. So not only does it not make any sense on a theoretical level, it doesn't make any sense in, in practice. But let me go back to the the genesis of it. The genesis of it is this idea that we can end the demand for sex by arresting enough buyers <laughs> to just make it all go away, right? It is, it's laughable, right? It yeah. is laughable. So this policy has been implemented in um, Norway, Nordic model, Sweden, Canada, and we see that all the dangers sex workers face, all the dangers victims of human trafficking face under criminalization, they still face under this model of um, of ending ending demand. When you're based on a criminalized, when you're you know dependent on a criminalized person for your income, you're you're not any safer. You're you're subject to kind of like the worst of uh, the worst of the worst, right? When it's when it's crim when both parties are criminalized, there's at least a little bit of an even playing ground there. And this idea that we can somehow end it by enough people, it just drives me wild by arresting enough people. It drives me wild because I want to ask the folks who believe in it, who a lot of them are second wave feminists, right, who think that we need to abolish sex work to achieve gender equality, are totally fine, it seems to me, watching people suffer and be put in dangerous situations while they embark on this fool's errand. Let me let me understand let me understand about how this end demand system works. The seller is decriminalized. The buyer is committing a, a criminal act. When the buyer pays the seller, are they then both doing criminal behavior or only the buyer? Technically, only the buyer, but we've seen in places such as Norway that just because they're not going to arrest the seller, the sex worker, for engaging in sex work, it doesn't mean they're not going to arrest them for tons of other things that they can try to arrest them for. It doesn't mean that they're not going to make their lives miserable. In Norway, under the quote-unquote end-demand model there, um, there was a government sanctioned program called Operation Homeless. And what this program's goal was, was to, again, you know, try to end demand by making sex workers' lives miserable. So you may not have been arrested for prostitution, maybe your client was, but now the police know you're a sex worker, right? So first of all, they're surveilling you to get to their, your clients. That's no way to live being surveilled. Second of all, now you're outed as a sex worker and they know you're a sex worker. So Operation Homeless, the police would go to folks' landlords, let them know they were 
a sex worker. It was illegal to rent to a sex worker, as it is a lot of places. And those people were out on the street oh. in a day. I get it. So in other words, the, the, the end demand is like ending the demand for drugs. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like the war on drugs. I mean, I, I can, it's hard to believe, but I believe it, that there are those who really believe that they can end the demand for sex purchasing. I mean, it's been going, it's, it's considered the oldest profession. It's been going on forever. I don't know where they're coming from to even think they can do it. So, uh, it, uh, it's, well, it's, they're coming from this, the same place that folks who want it fully criminalized come from. They're coming from a moral yeah, and ideological exactly. place instead of living in reality, looking yeah. at data, looking at evidence, you know, you know, drugs aren't going anywhere. Sex isn't going where, anywhere either. So the best we can do is to make it as safe as possible for folks who are engaged okay. in it. And decriminalization is how we do So that. over the last 50 years that I've been involved in what's called the drug wars, which, as you know, are not drug wars. They're really wars against people because a drug war is like when you take a, a, a drugs and you put them on a target and you shoot them. That's a drug war. But what we're doing is taking people and putting them in, in prisons, and that's a people war. And we, we know it's a failure. Almost everybody admits that's a failure. So I don't know to what extent we're ready to admit that our war against prostitution and sex work is a failure yet. But what I'd like to know is, since we have made progress in the last 50 years, over 26 states now have some kind of of law on marijuana, where it's either medicinal or recreational is legal. And we can see that's moving forward. And we can see now that four cities in the United States have legalized vegetables that come out of the ground. So Denver, Oakland, California, San Francisco, and actually the state of Oregon have legalized psilocybin, ayahuasca, and the various other things that come out of the ground. So we know that there's progress. What can you tell us about the progress, if any, that's going on with your organization and organizations like yours? How much progress are we making to create a more humane working environment for these people, the decrim movement that you're part of? I think a lot of progress has been made. You know, the movement is not new, not nascent. Um, it's more widespread than people believe. This idea of de decriminalization, it's not wild. It's not radical. Um, the World Health Organization recommends decriminalization to fight trafficking and um, AIDS, you know, and increase public health and safety, Amnesty International, UN Coalition for the Rights of Women. So there's a lot of data and evidence there. The movement has made a lot of progress. The issue is, you know, kind of the same with a lot of these other issues, the moral panic and the fear that proponents of, you know, or that op opponents to decriminalization um, instill in our in our lawmakers. Right. So nobody wants to be the first. It's a little scary. We've seen a lot of progress, you know, and and we're a relatively new organization compared to some of the organizations that have been out there fighting this cause forever and and for so many years but you know the same with drugs there's there's ups and downs you know with um the pandemic where more people turn to online 
sex work than ever before because it was actually safer to do that than maybe go out in public and risk getting COVID. What is what is what is online sex work, Ariel? Excuse my naivete. No, that's okay. Online sex work um, takes lots of forms. It might be, you know, interacting with someone online in a sexual manner. People have heard of OnlyFans where maybe you're selling, um, not everyone on OnlyFans is selling explicit or, you know, adult only photos. Um, but, but these are legal forms of, of sex work, you know, so I guess the best way to say it is kind of, it's, it's adult entertainment. Yeah, I um, see. Leading uh, adult, adult, and so more folks, adult entertainment and masturbation. It sounds like correct, and not in all cases, but in a lot, a lot of folks turn to um, online sex work during the pandemic. And you know, we don't pay people enough in this country, so a lot of people turn to it to supplement their incomes. And we saw with the rise in what many more people engaging in online sex work that we saw a huge crackdown on it. As well, we saw last year that credit card companies um, decided to pull, you know, themselves as payment processors for a lot of these websites. We saw people being outed in the newspaper. You know, there's cases of paramedics, of teachers, of, you know, people who were just dragged through the mud because of the stigmatization of, of sex work. And so, you know, there's these dips whenever something starts to get too good or too real, you know, here comes um, somebody to to tamp it down, to to push it down. And that's really, you know, as you said before, listen, the war on drugs, we both know, failed in terms of eliminating drugs. It succeeded in its main goal of punishing black and brown people and and making sure that they are not, you know, part of our communities and a lot of communities and, and society as they should be. The, those are the same laws that the roots of prohibition prostitution laws come from the same place. I, I, I just, I always go back to that. And, you know, because nobody, people feel uncomfortable saying decriminalized sex work sometimes, right? Because they feel uncomfortable talking about sex. They've been told that decriminalization leads to trafficking. They've been led to believe that sex trafficking is happening all over the place. And so it becomes this taboo thing. It's okay still in our society, which is, it's not, it's stigma kills, right? And discrimination kills. And it's still an an acceptable form of discrimination in this country, even among people who would never think that they're racist or discriminate in any way to discriminate against sex workers. But if you really look at the roots of these laws, like you would never say you're a misogynist. You would never say you're a racist, but it's okay you know, I see people that go out of their way to get it right with every other population. But when it comes to sex, they just can't get there. Yes. Now, in terms of data, do you have data on the skin color of sex workers? Like are, are, are sex workers predominantly brown, green, yellow, white? Uh, you know, does any particular skin color predominate? Well, we do have data on arrests for sex workers. And we know that criminalization in this country disproportionately affects marginalized communities, including people of color. So what we're effectively doing with our prostitution laws is making sure that people never have the opportunity to do something else, let's say, if they want to, 
um, because we're saddling them with a criminal arrest record. So no, we don't have great data on who out there is engaging in sex work, but we do have data on um, on the arrests for sex workers. We also, you know, have data on who gets arrested most often for buying, and it follows the same trends that criminalization does in this country in general. If you are marginalized, if you're without resources, you're more likely to get arrested. You're more likely to get arrested again. And you're, what kind of life is that? What are, what are we doing to people? We're doing very terrible things to people, and we're particularly doing terrible things to women, Have we, as we have for who, thousands perhaps of years. What I've discovered in, in writing the book that you know I'm, I'm uh, coming out with this year calling Freeing Sexuality is just a reminder of what I've known for so long that the oppression of women is perhaps the most severe oppression of any group on the planet. And it's, it's an oppression of everything about them, of, of, of an oppression of their, of their, personalities, oppression of their looks, and and a severe oppression of their sexuality. I mean, I just learned for the for the first time, Adiella, that the the orgasm gap between men and women in this country is the same as the income gap. That women have about one third of the orgasms that males have because orgasms in women have been suppressed. I discovered, for example, that in Gray's Anatomy in 1985, which is the most important anatomy book on the planet, the anatomy book didn't even mention the clitoris. I mean, it's amazing some of the things that are going on, not just in this country, but all around the world. And I'm sure as a female, you're much more aware of this than I am. But my education has been enormous about about the the. I don't even know what words to use about the... the, Well, we know that... Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, it's hard to... We could talk forever about this. We know that um, medical issues that predominantly affect, you know, um, people who are born with uteruses are not studied in the same way that that men's medical issues are. And they're not treated with the same care and, and... and consideration, you know, and this goes back to to what you were talking about um, first just now. Yes, the oppression women face in this country and around the world um, is massive, and it all of it is related. Because God forbid we let women experience full pleasure. Like, what? How much power would they have then, right? And why are we? scared of this so to you know go back to one of my biggest concerns is women are oppressed racial minorities are oppressed the most oppressed among us in this country are women of color transgender and cisgender women of color and when it comes down to sex work they're disproportionately harassed targeted victimized not only by predators predators but mostly by law enforcement and, you know, this, the nexus of where sex work exists in terms of the folks engaged in it and criminalization and racial justice and economic justice and health justice, you know, if we can decriminalize sex work 
we're mitigating so many of the issues that the systems in this country have inflicted on our most vulnerable. And why are they most our most vulnerable? Because we've made them that way. So we push people to the margins and then we punish them for being at the margins. So I think it's important to point out too, like right now we're talking about people who may engage in sex work because um, it supports their basic needs. You know, when we talk about sex work, we talk about it on a spectrum um, choice on one end, full choice. I have every opportunity in the world available to me. Um, I choose to do sex work because I fully enjoy it. I find it empowering. Circumstances, the most sex workers fall into this portion of the spectrum around circumstance, right? They're, they need to supplement their incomes. Maybe they've been forced out of the traditional labor force. Um, there still is choice involved if circumstance needs you to engage in sex work because full choice for your profession, how you earn your money is really a privilege that a lot of people are not afforded. So a person might turn to sex work in this circumstance category the same way somebody might turn to waiting tables. And I'm not saying that waiting tables isn't somebody's first choice, um, but there still is choice involved there. And that's important to recognize because we don't need to criminalize people for their choices, right? And then the far end of the spectrum is what we consider trafficking, coercion. So it is important to note that there's choice involved in all the other portions of the spectrum. And so, right, so we're talking about decriminalization to improve folks' lives. There's a practical reason to decriminalize. We're also talking about decriminalization because why should anyone give a shit about what two adults who are happy to be there do behind closed doors. I'm so tired of people deciding that their, you know, and this goes back to Tenzi systems, their power, their place in society comes from telling other people what they can and can't do. In Florida right now, like you don't like drag shows? Great. Don't go to this, don't go to one. You don't like sex work? Fantastic. Don't engage in it. But we have real problems and our politicians use these kind of really salacious talking points to to distract people from what's really happening and where we really need help and where we really need people to place their focus. So, you know, I, I know I'm going on and on here, but all roads lead to decriminalization, practical evidence, theoretical, political health outcomes like there's everything points towards except that i think i think you have an uphill battle with the governor of your state down there but that's another whole story i do you know we're not trying officially in florida i'm i'm uh i'm touched by your slogan or you know not a slogan but your statement we push people to the margins and then we punish them for being there it's it's a that's a very moving statement and I can feel it, and, and I appreciate your saying it that way. So we're coming to the end of our interview, and I have a, an important question for you. If people are listening to this, or they're reading this, uh, this interview, and they want to help your organization, or, or they want to help with the whole issue of decrim, what can they do? How do they get involved? Sure. Well, our website is uh, www.decriminalizesex.work. 
tons of information there, um, resources that we encourage folks to share that show the facts around sex work so that we're not basing our laws and our decisions around it in morality and ideology. So lots of information you can share with legislators, with anyone you think might be interested. Um, there's tons of grass, wonderful grassroots organizations around the country that we always like to partner with. Um, and a really basic thing people can do, right, because criminalization and stigmatization go hand in hand. Sex work is criminalized because it's stigmatized, stigmatized because it's criminalized. On a daily basis, people can pay attention to the language they use and the language they hear others use. Um, because we, a lot of people feel okay, like making jokes at, at sex workers' expense, at, at marginalized people's expenses. And you can do your part to destigmatize sex work by treating it as a profession, by treating the people who do it with dignity, with humanity. You know, again, folks on the margins were so quick to erase their humanity, erase their dignity and say that their lives are, are less valuable than, than others. And so pay attention, take a look, see the humanity, see the dignity and, you know, get realistic. We're not going to end sex work. And we, we want people to be safe. We want them to flourish. Um, so again, decriminalizesex.work. You can donate. If we don't need you to donate. We want you to share our information. Um, and to think about what laws in this country do to people who are impacted by them. I'll leave you with one final thought. I know I've spoken a lot here. Um, if folks really don't like sex work, if they really have a fundamental issue with folks doing it, the best thing they can do is decriminalize it because somebody who is engaged in sex work and who has been arrested for it now has um, a, a, an arrest record. And what do we know about arrest records in this country? They drastically hinder your ability to sustain life, to access gainful employment, to access housing. So if you really don't want folks engaged in it, let them do it without getting arrested. And then someday if they want to do something else, they will have that opportunity. So sometimes, Adiella, we go to a meeting or an interview like this, and it's over, and then we get in our car, and we drive away, and we have a thought. I wish I would have said, and then you think of something you wish you would have said. So I'm going to give you a few seconds now to pause and just think, is there anything that you'd like to add that will help your work help your organization or just help the listeners in general that you haven't said and take your time. I'm just sort of rambling on as you're thinking. I mean, to say it more succinctly than I did before, decriminalizing sex work does not lead to a proliferation of um, folks engaging in sex work or trafficking in any way. On the contrary, decriminalization promotes health and safety, and we need to be realistic about that. Thank you. And thank you, Ariella, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your being here. And gentle listeners, thank you for joining us today. Please go to our website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. This program will be archived, as will all our other wonderful programs. You can also get some information on my two recent books, Psychedelic Medicine and the most recent Psychedelic Wisdom. 
You heard another one's coming up this year. You can look forward to it, Freeing Sexuality. And until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness.